You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Um, hi, I'm Bogdan Korsine. Um, Me and my family attend Redeemer Odessa, and I will be reading today's passage for y'all, and it is Galatians 5, uh, 15 through 25. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Sorry, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the, word of, but the word of our God will stand forever. We good back there? There it is. Thanks, Bogdan. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're a guest, there is a connect card under your chair. If you would take a minute, fill that out. Um, let us know how we can serve you, how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. And on the back side of that connect card are some prayer requests. So if you have prayer, we'd be honored to pray for you. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Andrew will bring you one. Um, we use the ESV if you're on your phone. Um, and I think Matt mentioned this in the call to worship that our screen is persona non grata today, so uh, that means it's not working for the layperson. Um, the church has existed for a long time without projection. However, the early church did not have the ability to download an app on their phone, which we have. So if you want to get the app, there are sermon notes on your app, uh, on your phone, Redeemer Odessa in the App Store. So there's also a Bible on on that app if you need that. So take a second, download that, and I'm going to just jump right in with the story. Uh, My first ministry job out of college was at this little church in Dallas-Fort Worth in Arlington, Texas. If you were to take my wife's age and my age and add them together, we would have still been the youngest person in that church by a good 20 years Um, I was the part-time youth minister. Again, most of the people were in their 80s, so why they had a youth minister, I don't know. But there I was getting paid $236 a week as as a married guy in this Dallas-Fort Worth suburb. But as part of my compensation, I got to stay in the house that the church owned. They said, we'll pay for the water that you use, we'll pay for your water, Uh, so that you can keep the yard clean. We need you to mow the yard and just keep it looking nice. 
So the front yard was fine. It had a sprinkler system. It was Dallas-Fort Worth, so it was humid. It rained some. The yard was nice and green most of the time. And the backyard, on the other hand, was only a yard in the sense that it was fenced in and on the property, um, and it was behind the house. So it was a backyard in, like, the biblical sense of the word. But it was infested with weeds and stickers, we, uh, or as my delegation from Missouri calls them, cockleburs. Um, yeah, I've learned that one in the last couple months. So uh, weeds and cockleburs were, were our plight. We lived in that house for three years. And after the first year, I just kind of handed that backyard over to, to Satan. I just, like, <laughs> I just left it alone. And so it was no surprise that as I just left that yard alone that the weeds and the stickers got worse and worse and worse over time. Like, I could have done the hard work of digging out each sticker plant and spraying the yard and hand-watering the yard and planting new and healthy grass, but I didn't really want to. So I just tolerated the stickers and the weeds, and they took over the backyard. And what's worse is the carpet inside our house was no longer a safe place for me to walk around barefoot either. If I walked around barefoot across my house, I almost always got a sticker in the bottom of my foot. My desire was to have a yard, a backyard that I could have walked around in, sat down in, had a picnic with my new wife in. But instead, that yard was out to hurt me. And sin is like that too. Jesus speaks about this in the parable of the weeds or a.k.a. the parable of the wheat and the tares. Like sin just corrupts. Sin takes over, even in places where it is not wanted or desired. So in today's text, the Apostle Paul is going to give us some prescriptive steps in order to deal with sin in our lives. And this passage is also bookended by how we relate to one another within our faith family. So before we dive in, here are a few things I want to say. If you're walking in sin, if you're walking in willful, secret, ongoing, unrepentant sin, I implore you, by the grace and kindness of God to you to confess and repent. If you're walking in conflict with another believer in the church, this text has something for you as well. So my hope and my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would illuminate in our hearts areas where we are not walking faithfully with him and by the grace and mercy of Jesus through his Holy Spirit call us back to God. There's no guilt, there's no fear, there's no shame, there is no condemnation at the cross of Jesus, who by his blood has reconciled us back to God the Father and has made us sons and daughters. So my hope this morning for all of us is that we would rest in our adoption as believers. So let's pray together to that end. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, I pray that in spite of all the distractions and all the things not working this morning, Lord, that you would help us to focus, 
focus on your beauty, your majesty, your calling on our lives. Lord, that you would help us to rest in faith and dependency on your great love and your great mercy and your great grace for us. Lord, I think there's just so much at stake for us and how we approach this text. And so I just pray that you would be kind and reveal yourself to us this morning, Lord. Move in our hearts, stir our affections for you. Lord, call the wayward back. Encourage the faint-hearted, Lord. Admonish the idle. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. By the kind mercy of God, you would see Christ risen and exalted. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, Galatians 5. Um, Paul, in last week's text, said that as Christians, born again, Christ-following, regenerated believers in Jesus, that we are free. But we're not free to sin, but free to love and serve Jesus. We're no longer slaves to our sin, but we have been set free from our sin. Even though we still sin as believers, as Christians, as we await for the return of Jesus to complete our perfection in him, we have an assurance of the pardon from sin's penalty because Jesus Christ went to the cross. Jesus came into the world, born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, the life that we were called to live, and did not, and could not, and would not, because we're sinners. We have rebelled against God. We have rebelled against God's commands. We have rebelled willfully and actively and intentionally. We were enemies of God, and his wrath is upon us. Sin's penalty was death for us. The only thing that could then make us right was the perfect sinless sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, completed by his resurrection, and Jesus willingly died in our place. Jesus willingly died in our place. The death that we were supposed to die, but now because of Jesus, we'll never have to. And then Jesus arose three days later, defeating sin and death and completing the commands of God's laws against the penalty of sin. Jesus has purchased our pardon. So now we can be reconciled back to God. The salvation that Christ has purchased for Christians leads then to our adoption. Paul says because of the pardon from sin's penalty, the wrath of God that leads to our condemnation and our separation from God, because of our pardon from sin's penalty, we are then led to rest. We are free to rest in our identity as children of God. And unfortunately, we still live in this tension where Christ is our Redeemer and we still battle our fleshly desires. 
Oftentimes this creates unrest in us, not just within our own consciousness, but oftentimes there's sin that leads to conflict within the church. And far too often when this happens, we would rather leave the church, leave our Christian community, go find somewhere else where everybody is just as messed up as the place we're leaving. We would rather do all that than just deal with conflict in the way that honors the Lord. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you are a believer in Jesus, knowing you have been forgiven by Jesus and are following Jesus with your life, then we ought to lovingly endure with one another in a way that God and Christ has lovingly endured with us. Let's look at verse 15 of Galatians 5. It says, But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If our posture isn't grace towards one another, if our attitude towards each other in the midst of conflict is anything other than grace and forgiveness, then it is actually possible, Christians, it is possible that you don't really understand just how broken and sinful you really are. If your response is slander and gossip and assuming the worst about somebody, then you don't understand just how gracious God is. You don't understand how gracious God has been to the least deserving sinners, such as yourself. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God to us. We have received it. Now we have to extend it to Christians. If we don't extend grace to one another then it would stand to reason that you don't think your sin is a big deal. And it is, because Jesus came to die. Paul is advocating for love and unity within the household of God. He says it is possible, though, that the adverse is true. That we, like two wild animals, can rip each other apart. But still, he offers us a better way. Verse 16. But I say, that's Paul, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is still being very direct here, as he has been throughout the whole book. He is giving a command. And that command is, walk by the Spirit of God, who is indwelling us as believers. To summarize this command, Paul says, Imitate what we see in Christ. The Greek word for walk here means to walk around after someone or to walk in a particular direction. So what Paul is essentially commanding us when he says walk by the Spirit is to follow our teacher around. Imitate Christ. And how do we know what Christ is like? How do we know what God's will for us is? We see who Christ is in his word. We see his will for our lives by, by what the Bible says. And we get to know Christ through prayer. And we get to know Christ by being a part of the body of Christ, i.e. community. What Paul is offering us is essentially a conditional statement. If you walk by the Spirit... If you walk in the ways of Jesus, 
If you are obedient to Christ, then you will not gratify your, gratify your fleshly desires that are sinful. Essentially, what Paul is doing is highlighting for us our utter inability to walk with God apart from relying on the presence of God in our life. You cannot overcome sin without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God working in your life. You will bite and devour one another apart from the presence of God in your life. You will gratify the desires of the flesh apart from walking with the Spirit of God. Thomas Schreiner makes it a point to note the tension between God's sovereign power and human free will. He says, Christians must decide to walk by the Spirit continually. And at the same time, the Spirit of God is at work in us to create new appetites and give us new power to resist the flesh and to please God. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So that leads me to wonder why would Paul talk about the fleshly desires like this? Why are the fleshly desires and gratifying them such a big deal? Let's see what the scripture says. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Gratifying the fleshly desires are against God. That's why they're a big deal. God is opposed to sin. Take note here. There is no neutral space. You are living in either one sphere or another you are either dependent upon the Spirit of God or you are living a life gratifying your flesh. We cannot grow in Christ. We cannot depend on the Spirit in our own power. Look, the gospel isn't behavior modification. Jesus doesn't ask you to change your behavior to look a certain way or to feel a certain way. Rather, Jesus asks you to give him your life, to follow him, and he will change your desires, and he will change your motivations. The gospel isn't meant to lead us to a better performance, but to repentance and to grace and to freedom. You don't simply just say no to your sin. If you are submitting to the Spirit of God, if you are laying aside what you want in order to glorify God, then you're unable then to gratify the flesh. You cannot pray and look at porn simultaneously. You cannot pray and be a drunkard simultaneously. Growth in Christ doesn't happen within your own ability. It isn't simply saying no to sin. It is also saying yes to the Spirit of God. This verse shows us that there is a battle within us as believers. 
We have desires that are both for godliness and for sin. And it will be like this until Christ has made us perfect. You will struggle with sin, Christian. And yet, you can also have victory over sin now. And God is merciful and gracious to give us what we ask for when we seek to grow in Him. Tony Morita says that part of the problem with fighting the flesh is a casual attitude towards sin. Paul is telling us that the Christian life is a war. Therefore, in order to conquer the flesh, one must see the seriousness of the battle that we're in. So imagine with me for a second, like a battle scene. If you've seen a good war movie, a battle scene. Maybe Normandy, that's what came to mind, where the Allies are storming the beaches at Normandy. The other side is shooting at you. You're a soldier on this boat. You're about to storm Storm Normandy, storm the beaches. And the other side is shooting at you. Bullets are flying over your head. Explosions are all around you. And as you step off the boat to go up to the battle on the beaches, you lay your gun down, you pull out your phone, and you take a selfie with the ocean behind you. That's the approach a lot of us have towards sin. We think we can kick it on our own. We think we are strong enough that sin will not entice us. We don't invite others into the fight to help us along. We don't invite others in to pray for us. We don't invite others in to point us back to the truth of the gospel. We don't invite others in to hold us accountable to the things of the Lord. We don't think it's a big deal. And so we just have a casual like, meh approach to it. We take a casual approach to our sin. We take a less than scorched earth approach to getting the junk outside of our lives that we're enslaved to. But what verse 18 tells you, Christian, is that you're a new creation. Because of Christ, you have been set free, not to sin, but you've been set free from sin. And knowing that Christ has destroyed sin by the power of death through himself, that ought to lead you to more vigor to fight against sin in your own life. But are you casual towards sin? Are you casual towards the sin in your own life? Are you living willfully under the crushing weight of sin? Or do you live by the freedom found in Christ's forgiveness? Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do such things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's easy to read these lists and not understand the gravity of what Paul is saying. If I have made a life, if I have made a life rhythm of sexual immorality, defined as sexual sin of any kind, sex with anyone who isn't your spouse, pornography, homosexuality, if I have made this a part of my normal rhythm of life, Paul says, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. If I have made a life rhythm of responding in anger, Paul says, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. If I have made a life rhythm out of jealousy or drunkenness or impurity, were it not for the cross of Jesus offering me forgiveness, I will not inherit as an adopted son or daughter the kingdom of God, but I will earn the wages of my sin, death. Were it not for the cross. Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. That means obvious. Before we jump into this section, I do want to say that um, this list that Paul gives us is not meant to be exhaustive. Like, it's sufficient because it's Scripture, but there are things that are outside of the will of God that Paul doesn't mention in this list that are mentioned other places. Greed comes to mind immediately. So don't look at this list and think that if none of these directly apply to me, which is impossible, by the way. But if none of these directly implied, apply to me, then I'm, I'm doing great. And I also don't think it's necessary for our time today to go through these one by one. So I'm going to take them in, in groupings and just summarize a little bit. Paul deals with sexual sin. Interestingly enough, anytime Paul makes lists of sins, sexual sin is always listed first. The term sexual immorality, or in the Greek, porneia, is a general word for all forms of sexual immorality. This word emphasizes a lack of restraint. Sexual sin, like all sin, grieves the Holy Spirit, but generally speaking, this sin is not just affecting the person committing the sin. It is a complete dishonoring of a person made in the image of God. Sexual sin is horrifically self-centered in its nature. It is totally opposed to God's good design for sex. Paul then moves from sexual sin to religious works of the flesh. He mentions idolatry. Everyone worships someone or something. Whether you realize it or not, your time, your money, your affections, your values go to someone or something. And when it's not God, it's an idol. Idolatry is a heart issue. Tony Morita says people commit idolatry when they look to something other than God to give them what only God can give them. These desires include salvation, peace, security, joy, and provision. 
Money is mentioned throughout the Bible, and that's a big idol today. Paul moves from religious works of the flesh to relational works of the flesh. Eight of these that he mentions in this list deal directly with relational sins. He starts with enmity, which means hatred. That's the root of conflict. Strife, to have a temper or a contentious spirit. Jealousy or envy leads to bitterness and sometimes violence. Those who are jealous of others demonstrate a lack of gratitude to God for his providence and provision. And it demonstrates a lack of love for other people. Then Paul finally moves to um, indulgences. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These deal with a lack of self-control that the flesh produces. Those who cannot control their appetite for food, for alcohol, for sex, or other things. Then Paul says, and things like these. That's comforting because Paul could really keep going. But that's not the point. The point isn't that he's highlighting particular sins. But rather, Paul is asking of his readers to consider if their lifestyle represents faith in God or fleshly desires. The only thing a sinful nature produces is unholiness, demonstrated by sin for all to see. This list serves as a mirror for our own hearts. And this list comes with a warning. If you are living in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin, if you are knowingly sinning, habitually sinning, perhaps even feeling some conviction about it, and doing it anyways, you are in real danger. To inherit God's kingdom means you acknowledge your sin before God and before man and receive his forgiveness and receive the free gift of God's grace to you. Riken asks this question. Does this mean that anyone who is guilty of any of these vices that Paul has just described is going to hell? Certainly anyone who commits these sins deserves to go there. And for this reason, we should not think lightly of these or any other sins. But here's some good news. Remember that the Christian, even the spirit-filled Christian, still has a sinful nature. From time to time, believers will commit these very sins. What Paul is talking about indicates habitual action accompanied with unrepentance, not occasional lapses. Christian, don't despair. Even in your struggle against sin, even with your continued failure to fight well, the Spirit is willing to work in you. The Spirit is willing to work in you through repentance. He will enable you to live a life that is pleasing to God. We sin and we sin so easily because we are doing what comes naturally to us. The sinful nature produces sinful fruit. 
if we aren't grounded in the reality of Christ's grace. When we struggle with sin, we will gravitate towards despair. We may also gravitate towards pride, thinking we have to and even can fix it on our own. One commentator took me back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 33. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Man, we're bad trees to start with. Born diseased, dead trees. With no hope of ever being fruit-bearing good trees on our own. But the Spirit of God is like a good tree. And the Spirit makes us good trees as we abide in Him. The fruit that the Spirit produces is this. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. A couple things to note is that Paul is talking about fruit, not fruits, uh, meaning the collective sum of this list is Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit as a whole is a character sketch of Jesus. Marita says as we abide in Christ, as we obey Christ, as we follow Jesus, as we stay close to Jesus, all of these fruits get produced in us. We walk in the Spirit and produce fruit being like Jesus. So how, again, how do we know what Jesus is like? In order to follow Jesus and know His will, we depend on the Word of God to us. How can we expect to know the Spirit of God? And how can we expect the Spirit to grow in us the fruit of himself, if we never spend time in God's word and we never spend time with God through prayer. So here we have this list. And love is mentioned first. Love is evidenced according to 1 John 4 that we know God and that God knows us. Paul even talks about the primacy of love between two chapters on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. He says, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Again, like this list of vices, this list of virtues isn't necessarily complete, but it is sufficient because it's Scripture. Hope is mentioned in other places as a mark of faith, for example. The point isn't that you're looking at this list and thinking, I'm really good at joy not so great at gentleness, so I need to work on some gentleness. Like, that's not the point. The point is that Christ embodies these things. And we should desire to be more like Jesus. And when you're walking by the Spirit of Jesus, following Christ's example by the Spirit of His grace, it is He who grows in you the fruit of following Jesus. And again, we cannot accomplish this on our own. We don't have time to break these down one by one, but I will say that they're broken up in triads, and so I'll highlight the triads for us. Love, joy, peace. The Spirit produces in us by the love of God to us, love for Him and love for others. 
The Spirit produces joy in us. We often equate joy and happiness to mean the same thing, but joy is different than happiness. A lot of times we look at our circumstances and absolutely hate them, and we aren't happy with them. Joy, on the other hand, means that we can rejoice in all circumstances because the Spirit of God is in us. It doesn't mean that you must be joyful that you have received a cancer diagnosis or something else, but that though you are experiencing pain and hard and suffering, you still have joy because God is still good and God cares for you. Peace. Peace means we have been purchased by Christ through the cross and resurrection, and now we have peace with God. Because of this, we have assurance that Christ in us is interceding for us by his Spirit to us, and we can rest confidently in this truth. Patience, kindness, goodness. God has been kind to us even when we don't deserve it. Therefore, we are kind and generous, i.e. goodness, to those in our lives, patiently enduring with one another in the way that Jesus has been patient and kind and good to us. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Faithful. The faithful person is true to their word and dependable as God has been true to his word and dependable to not leave us as we were. The gentle person is gentle in the way that our Savior Jesus is gentle with us. Tender and compassionate and kind in a way that brings about repentance. Self-control means that those who are outside of the Spirit live lives that are out of control. Those who are led by the Spirit are living self-controlled, disciplined, holy kind of lives. Against such things there is no law. Christian, you live by the Spirit of God. It cannot be legislated. The law can never produce this kind of Spirit-filled fruit in your life. Paul says the works of the flesh are obvious as are the works of the Spirit. Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Are you living a Christ-like life? Maybe you say sometimes, and I'd say, join the club, man. Don't be discouraged, Christian. Don't be discouraged. The Spirit grows in you, desires for the Lord. And it is gradual, and it's often painful, but he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And how do we know this? Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Because we belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. Those in Christ have been crucified with Christ to then therefore die to our sins. We get to crucify our flesh by the power of the resurrection of Jesus. 
Our fight against our sin, our fight against our flesh isn't a hopeless battle. Look, sometimes you lose that battle. But Christ will win the war. And since Christ is in us, we also get to share in his victory. We have hope because we belong to Jesus through his death. By the cross and resurrection, Jesus has purchased our pardon and granted to us a new identity in himself. And because you belong to Jesus, Christian, you don't have to be dominated by your sin. Because we have the Holy Spirit, this same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, you don't have to be dominated by your sin. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, Christian, We have this type of presence and power available to us, and oh, how often do we forfeit that privilege. Rest in Him. And you also have the church. You're not called to like a one-versus-one arcade-style street fighter battle. It's not a one-on-one, you versus your sin type of battle. This is why we push community so hard here. We are not called to do this alone. We aren't called to live isolated lives. If we try to do this Christian life as individuals, isolated individuals, we miss, excuse me, we miss a huge blessing of getting to bear one another's burdens and we get in positions where we're going to get picked off easily by the enemy. We need Christian community to point us back to Jesus when our desires for him are lacking. And we may not even be aware that our desires for Christ are lacking. Be open. Be honest in your struggles, church. It is far better to live vulnerably humble lives before one another than to walk in fear and to carry around the burdens of sin and shame that it produces. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We have the Spirit in our lives to guide us along the way. Keeping in step with the Spirit is military language. You're to march in time under the direction of God. God himself lives inside of us, but now we have to follow him. We have to daily kill the flesh. Dr. George says, for the believer, we are to walk in the Spirit under the leadership of the Spirit. Paul bookends this section of Scripture with some don't commands. Don't relate to each other in a haughty and arrogant, envious sort of way. Don't devour each other. Don't bite and devour each other. But rather, because you belong to Jesus, you are to emulate the nature and character of Jesus. You get to love and to serve one another as we are all members of the same family if we are in Christ, bought by the blood of Jesus. 
So now we can lovingly endure with one another in the way that Christ has lovingly endured with us. Are you abiding in Christ? If you claim to be a Christian, does your life look like Jesus' life? Or does it look more like the flesh? A spirit-filled life doesn't mean that we are speaking in tongues and prophesying, but that we're exhibiting the things of Jesus. That we become less and he becomes more. Is your life evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit? And if not, why not? Why not? Are you harboring anger and resentment and bitterness towards someone? Maybe somebody even in this room. Are you being a peace faker? Are you being a peacemaker? If you're walking in conflict, openly or secretly, with a brother or a sister, that that does not honor God. And it damages the church, and it damages the witness of the church. So before you do anything else today, and I mean it, like before you leave the fundome, deal with it. Deal with it. Take someone with you if you need to. We can get you a conflict resolution fill guide to read together. Just don't sit and stew any longer. As Christ has reconciled us back to the Father, be reconciled to one another. What do you need to repent of this morning? Are you walking in unrepentant sin? Maybe you just have a casual attitude towards the things of the Lord. That represents pride, and that represents unbelief. Church, Christ is calling you out of your unbelief this morning. By the cross and by the resurrection, you can receive his forgiveness this morning. So place your faith in Christ and turn to him. Let's pray.